What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in and checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. This is episode 20. I'm your host, Wes, and today we're going to talk about chasing your passion to the palm trees. We all know that having passion and drive is important. We all know that, you know, it takes work and dedication to pursue your dreams. There's always this turning back point that exists that is kind of different for everyone. And it's usually based on kind of a number of different variables, you know, like how far will you go to chase your dream? Always a question that you have to ask yourself. Entrepreneurs often go broke chasing their dream. Happens all the time, every day. The, you know, the dream to be a business owner and be self-employed, like that's, that's the way, right? A lot of people are super excited about doing their own thing. I don't want to work for a boss. I don't want to punch in, whatever it is. There's lots of barriers that become very apparent when taking that entrepreneurial leap. Things like time, money, family, bills, age, and you know, basically knowledge, you know, all of a sudden become larger than life. So sure, you can go open up a cupcake stand and make some money if you already have things like a house, a car, a home with a kitchen, resources, stuff like that. These things are usually being supplemented by your day job. But the question is, could you do it if that was your only gig? Your cupcake stand now has to pay for things like space and supplies an industrial kitchen, staff members, advertising. Like, could you still do it? A logical person would probably do it part-time for a number of years until their cupcake stand could survive on its own, and then they can make the transition from your day job to your passion. Because, you know, your passion project can now pay the bills. I've seen this over and over and over again, where someone has so much passion that they can kind of have blinders on, so the reality doesn't quite hit them until it's too late. The point that I'm getting at is that it's our passion that drives us to create and kind of go that extra length and just grind it out, which is completely amazing. But it's also our passion that alters our perspective and makes us see things through a very different lens. I spent a lot of years chasing my passion. Everything in my life for about 15 or so years was all about drumming. I was a drummer. That was it. I toured and I lived the life of a touring musician along with all the good and all the bad that came with it. You know, I think in the last episode, I talked at the end about moving away from the Pacific Northwest and having some great opportunity that had kind of come my way and allowed me to continue to chase my passion. Where we last left off is that I was um, basically about to leave the Pacific Northwest, more or less, and I was kind of talking to you know, some of my guys I knew from New Jersey and one of the guys I used to know played in a band from New Jersey was all actually from Detroit. I met him in Detroit years and years and years ago. And he was playing in a band called Sworn Enemy. They were like this hardcore band from New Jersey. They needed a drummer. I don't really remember sorting out kind of where I was going to live and what I was going to do. I just knew that they needed a drummer and I was going to go there and we were just going to figure it out. This is how chasing your passion gets you into trouble. And you just forget about things and you get those blinders on, right? Like this is something that happens kind of when you're willing to do whatever it takes kind of at any cost just to follow your dream. So I was literally going to move 3,000 miles to the other side of the country and I had no idea where I was going to live. Like that's just bananas. So this was like December and my plan was to drive back to Michigan, spend the holidays with my family, and then head on to New Jersey just after Christmas. Seems like a pretty good plan. You know, I didn't think much about it at the time, but, you know, December 
is not a good time to drive across the 90 <laughs> in a, in a um, rear-wheel drive sports car, right? Just not a good idea. You know, there's so much snow and tons of mountains, and it's pretty dangerous. You know, at the time, like I was driving this old Porsche, and it was a two-seater with a hatchback, so I basically shipped all my drums to my dad's house in Flint, and then I packed up the rest of my stuff and just kind of headed out. Like, I do remember getting some wire chains from a guy. Um, I think I got them off Craigslist or something. And basically, I packed all my clothes in the back hatch. And then I put these chains right on the top. And I closed the hatch. Like, it was so close to being not closed. There was so much crap in there. And so, but the chains were right there on top, just in case I needed them. So, you know, I was like, this is going to be it. And so, I, it was me and my cat. This is crazy. I'm telling stories about my cat. Me and my, my cat and I were driving across country. He was in the front seat. The whole front seat was open for him. He had a little cage up there and it had, um, he had a blanket and he had a litter box in the front, like in the floorboard. It was cool. It was, it was a good little, good little road trip. And so he mainly sat on top of the carrier for the most part. But you know, when I would go into like a store or stop for gas, like he would literally go right into the cage and then I would get out, come back in and I would open the little cage door. And he would come right back out, sit on top of his cage. We'd drive for, you know, five, ten, whatever hours, however many we needed, to, we needed to go. On this trip, we got like 10 hours into our 40-hour trip, and the highway was shut down in both directions because of snow. There were basically state troopers at the exit with big cones, like kind of guiding you off the road in this giant truck stop. There were like 100 trucks there, like a lot of cars, but mainly it was just like this truck haven. Um, and, you know, they were selling lots of chains in the store. It was, it was, a, real, it was a real weird place. It was basically like you go in and they have like some kind of food and there's like a, you know, gas station type thing, but it also sold like nuts and bolts and truck parts. I don't know. It was real weird. Kind of like a flying J, but I guess a little more rustic, I guess. We sat in the truck stop for about 14 hours and, you know, I would just stay in the car with my cat and he would just sit on my chest and, We'd recline back and go to sleep for a few hours. And every few hours, I'd go into the store, either go to the bathroom, get something to eat, whatever. And they had this big chalkboard up that basically said, you know, the latest road closures. And, you know, had the, some weather forecasts on there too. But for the most part, it was basically like, you know, road closed both ways. So it wasn't really doing a lot of good for me. So after about 14 hours or so, I turned on the local radio and I heard that they had opened up this road kind of around one of the mountains for commuter cars. So no trucks, which was cool. And I looked at my map and it was only a few miles away. So I took off. And once I drove around that kind of pass, it was like 20 minutes, 20 miles. I linked back up with I-90 and I just kept going. It's great. The rest of the trip had some twists and turns, um, a handful of I'm almost going to die moments, but I made it to Michigan safe and sound. It was a good long trip. Something about trips by yourself gives you lots of time to think, to contemplate, to plan, reflect. Um, you know, it's an interesting time when you're left to your own devices and you just got to go and do your thing. So before I left town, I had told some people back home that I was going to be home for a few weeks around the holidays, kind of had some time in between. So my old band Spit decided to do a reunion show in downtown Flint. And we did a show it was awesome. It was just like old times. I'll say this. Um, I've played in a lot of bands and done a lot of weird tours and, you know, played the shows for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. 
And then, you know, I've played the shows for five people. And I'll say this, I've never had more fun playing in a band than I had playing in my first band. Like everything was so new and fresh and we were young and like figuring it out. We were all learning and growing together as musicians, as people, as friends. Uh, It was awesome. You know, playing that show just completely took me right back. It's so much different when you're doing it for fun and you're in your youth and you're figuring it out. It's much different than when you're on the road, you know, and there's business involved and you have to sell merch and you have to make money. It's like a whole, it's a whole thing. I can tell you it's, it's something about, you know, doing the stuff that you were doing when you were kids. Um, you know, it's no different than swinging on a swing as an adult. You're like, I forgot how much fun this was. There's a reason why you did it for hours and hours when you were a kid, right? So anyway, let's get back to the move for a sec. So I was home um, preparing to go to New Jersey. I even went out with my dad and bought this old blazer to drive out there. Um, I wanted something that I could kind of haul my drums, something that had a four-wheel drive. You know, I was going to be living back in the snow, so the Porsche wasn't really going to be the right car. So I bought this blazer, put the Porsche in the garage. You know, we talked about the garage in a couple other episodes and, you know, about how the garage was basically like a converted it was a converted garage, didn't really have a front door on the garage anymore. And so we, you know, had taken that, you know, the garage door off and put in this, like, I don't even know what you call it, some sort of fascia, right? And they had two windows on it. So it almost looked like a little apartment, no longer a garage door. And we did this for my brother, you know, years ago. So, you know, this, this was our band space for a long time, but since I moved away, it wasn't a band space anymore. So in order for us to get the car into the garage, I had to take off the entire front of the garage and then drive the car in and then seal it back up like a time capsule. I imagine people driving by probably thought we were crazy. I don't know. It was, it's pretty wild though. It's kind of a wild thing to think about taking the entire front off of a garage just to like drive a car in there and then seal it back up. It was pretty neat. So I was all set for New Jersey. I had about three weeks until I was headed out and I got a phone call from my friend, John Wiley. And John was actually a label owner of a label called Eulogy Records, based out of South Florida. And I met John years ago. Our bands played shows together. Um, His label also re-released one of the first Walter Jericho EPs that we put out on this European label, and he ended up re-releasing it. Anyway, he had this band in South Florida that he was playing guitar in called Until the End. And he asked me, I don't even know how we ended up talking on the phone, but he asked me what I was up to. And I told him that, you know, I was going to, I was heading to Jersey. I was going to play in Sworn Enemy. And, you know, his thing was like, he's like, dude, you shouldn't go to Jersey. You should come to South Florida instead. And I'm like, what? What's, what's going on in South Florida? And he's like, well, until the end, he's a drummer. And I was like, oh, and I had known some of these guys from before and from playing shows with these guys. And some of them were my friends. Some of them I didn't know very well. I'm just like, you know, I had a choice to make. You know, I'm going to go to the cold in New Jersey, not really know much about what I'm doing, right? Or I can go and live South Florida and go play until the end. Either way, I was going east, right? Just had to figure out whether was I going north or was I going south. Anyone that knows me knows that I'll pretty much pick the beach over anything. So it wasn't, it wasn't much of a, wasn't much of a difficult choice (laughs) to decide to go, (laughs) to go down to South Florida, hang out in the palm trees. For a little bit. So that was it. It was easy, man. It was 
it, w- it was an easy move. I, uh, you know, I now had to sell the blazer and I had to pull the Porsche back out of the time capsule because I was going to go down in the, you know, in the sun, man. So that was, that was it. I was ready to take it with me. So, you know, I pulled it back out, bought some new flip flops and, uh, I was out, I was heading to Florida. That was, was an easy choice. Going to hang out at the beach, obviously catch some waves. That's what people do in Florida, right? So I packed up the Porsche with all my necessities. Uh, I got my drums ready to ship down to Florida. Now that I wasn't driving, I had to figure out how to quickly ship my drums down there, which was going to be another feat. So let's just jump off topic for just a minute. And I'll, I'll thread it back in a minute, I promise. I just want to talk about this um, just for a second. So my mom was uh, she's a little different. I'm not going to say she was crazy, but I definitely think she had a few chemical imbalances happening in her brain uh, most of her life. You know, I lived with her for a few years in high school because I flunked out of school in Flushing. Didn't want to go to Flint schools. You know, her and my stepdad divorced about a year after me living there. Then we moved to this townhouse on the other side of Grand Blanc once they split up. And I didn't live there long. I think it was like maybe two years total. I think it's kind of a common scenario. Once I got old enough to drive, I kind of moved back in with my dad and just commuted to school. Like I remember when I graduated. It was weird because I hadn't seen my mom in a long time. And she came to my open house. Like I, I don't remember her being part of planning it. Um, I don't think she had anything really to do with it. She just kind of showed up. You know, open house, graduation party, whatever you guys call it. The, uh, you know, the thing is people bring cards, usually money, cash checks, whatever. People are going to college. People are getting ready for the next chapter of their life. And it's always a cool thing for people to help out people that are in that, you know, in that transitional state. So you know, she gave me uh, she gave me a card and gave me some money in the card, and she knew I was saving up for a car. So again, we're off topic for a second, but I'll thread it back in a second. Um, I was saving up for a car, and so I remember she told me she's like, "Hey, I put some money in your card. If you need more money, I know you're saving up for a car, a new car. I had a car, but it wasn't a great car. Going for a better car." And so she said she would try to help me out. So. A few weeks later, I called her and told her that I was like 500 bucks shy of getting this car that I really wanted, and I wanted to take her up on her offer to help me get a car. And so she said she would look at her bank account and get back to me. I'm like, cool, sounds good. It's, it's going to happen. A week or so goes by. I never heard from her. So I went to her house, and I knocked on the door. And let me just step back and say this for a second. This, this was a new house. She had moved. And I'm trying to remember this. She had moved and she didn't tell me that she was moving. Like I had moved in with my dad already. Um, At some point she had moved from the townhouse that we used to live in to another place and didn't tell me. The only way I found out where she was living is I went to the old house and there was a forwarding mail address on the mailbox. So I kind of tracked her down and I went to her new apartment complex and I saw her car in the parking lot. So I was like, oh. I'm in the right place. Great. I went up, knocked on the door, and she never answered. Called her a few times after that and never never really answered my calls. I got frustrated and just kind of stopped calling her. You know, I didn't hear from her until about maybe 2001, until I was about to move to Seattle, which she conveniently told me I was moving to Washington because she grew up in Louisville, and that's how they talk. They put R's in things that uh, aren't supposed to be there, like when they tell you that you have to wash your hands. That was a common phrase in my house growing up. And so, you know, I stopped calling her. I didn't see her for a long time. Um, And then 
At some point when I was about to move, she showed up and we had lunch together. And so it was kind of like a hello, goodbye. And so, you know, there I was, you know, leaving. I think she wrote me a few letters when I moved to Seattle. And then, um, you know, just kind of saying hello, small talk, stuff like that. Uh, I think after a few letters, I really didn't hear from her too much after that. So, you know, here's right there, then, you know, for a second. So when I came home before heading to Florida, my sister told me that she saw my mom and followed her to her house. She moved again and not told anyone where she lived. So, which isn't common. People move. Like, I get it. People move. So, so my sister gave me her address. Like, my sister did exactly what I did, which is, like, track her down, right? She actually followed her home from, like, a gas station, um, which was pretty cool, but also kind of creepy. But So, my sister gave me her address, and I went over to her house and just kind of knocked on the door. It was rolled up, like, you know. She opened the door and was like, hey, how's it going? Like, no time had passed. Like, she didn't move. She did not tell anyone that she was moving. It was kind of weird. She was living in this trailer park. And when I walked in, everything looked the way it did when I was 10. All her furniture was like this 80s style wood. Her, her kitchen table had her makeup mirror on it right next to, you know, a Diet Coke and a pack of Winston Light 100s. Like, that was just how she rolled. That's the way I remembered her when I was younger. There were pictures of my brother and I on the walls, and it was literally like stepping back in time. It's, it's, it's strange. Like she was living that time of her life all over again, but like 15 years later. Very strange. So anyway, this was, this was around Christmas time, and you know, I mentioned it was wintertime and driving across the 90 in the snow. It's, it's December. My mom asked me, what did I want for Christmas? And keep in mind, like, I hadn't, I hadn't seen her in years, right? And this was, it was basically like I was 10 years old again. She's like, what do you want for Christmas? And I told her, like, um, I don't need anything. You know, I just wanted to, to say hi and spend some time with her. And, you know, she asked me a few more times while I was there. And I said, you know, well, if you really want to do something, um, I don't need anything. But if you really want to do something, I need to ship my drums to Florida. Uh, that would be really helpful. That would be, you know, kind of a burden off me and a little strap for cash as I'm moving across the country. And I said it'd be about 300 bucks to ship them down there. She said, no problem. And that she would love to do that for me. I'm like, great, this is going to be awesome. She told me to come over in the morning that I needed to ship them and she would give me a check. So the day before I was heading out, I cruised over to her house to pick up the check. Her car was in the driveway. So I walked up, I knocked on the door and guess what? No one answered. I looked in the window. Her stuff was all sitting on the table along with a burning cigarette in the ashtray but she was nowhere to be found. I called her a few times later that day, but I never got a hold of her. The next day I woke up and was trying to figure out how I was going to get my drums down to Florida. I was pretty strapped for cash. It's one of those things, you gotta just figure it out. And so one of my best childhood friends from the neighborhood completely stepped up. Like I'd been hanging out with him for a little while when I was home. He's one of those dudes that like, we went down very different paths and led very different lives, but we've always been friends, and we always will be friends, and we just catch up, and every time I see him, it's like no time had passed. I'm sure we all have those friends, right? And so that morning, and I was telling him what happened with my mom, and kind of venting, and you know, he knew what happened my open house, and we've been friends for a long time, and he was like, dude, I'm on my way over. And he came over to my house, picked up my drums in the cases, loaded them into his truck, and took them to UPS for me. No questions asked. 
no, you owe me, no words required. He told me, drive safely to Florida, and that my drums would be there waiting for me when I got there. It was just an amazing showing of friendship that I'll never, ever forget. My buddy Jeff Glanska stepped up, hooked it up, and my drums were there when I got there. And I probably would have never made it if it wasn't for him. We should all be so fortunate to have friends like Jeff. So let's jump into my favorite part of the podcast. What did I really learn from all this looking back some 20 years later? I learned that sometimes your passion can take you down some pretty unexpected roads. And it can cause you to make choices that you never ever thought you'd have to make. You know, here's a trick. Like you have to be open to it. And you have to be okay with being uncomfortable for a while. Think about that for a second. No one likes to be uncomfortable. No one forces themselves into those situations, but you have to know that it's happening and you have to just be okay with it. It's only short-lived and when it's over, it's over, but you have to know that it's happening and be okay with being uncomfortable for just a little while. Your passion can sometimes cause you to eat at truck stops in Wyoming in the middle of winter. I think it was Emerson that said, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. It's 100% true. Like the journey or the process is what seasons you, right? It's what gives you perspective. It's what educates you and informs you. I mean, it's how we learn things, right? This is why the ending of things like movies and books are created to be great. It's the process in our brains where we put it all together and then it hits you like a ton of bricks. Everyone has that kind of, oh, aha moment. And when it happens, it's, you, can't, you can't recreate it. It's, it's fantastic. I think this is where I started to learn about kind of managing expectations. You know, although I'm still learning and working on how that all works at this point in my life, I started to understand not the why, but the what. I think the why is always harder to get than the what. The what being what I now have to do to get from A to B or pick myself up or figure out a new plan. I only expected my mom to help me ship my drums because she said she would as her way of helping. I expected her to follow through. It's funny, looking back, I'm not sure really why I expected this, knowing how hard she kind of burned me in the past. I guess she was consistent. As always, thanks for listening to the Hustle the Most podcast. This was episode 20. Check out more stories, photos, and connect with me at hustlethemost.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes, click the subscribe button, give us a like, give us a share. You're feeling super inspired. Write a review. Tell us what you think of the show. It really helps others find the show that never would have heard it before. We'll see you on the next one.